The people's fight back against the bank's cashless agenda is winning. And will the Anglo-Americans accept Putin's peace offer? Coming up in this week's episode of the Citizens Report. Welcome to the Citizens Report. It's the 15th of February 2024. I'm Robert Barwick and I'm joined today by Citizens Party founder and leader Craig Isherwood. Welcome Craig. Yeah, thanks Robbie. In this week's show, we are going to go through a whole bunch of things the banks have been doing, but they're not getting it all their own way. What we are doing is fight to fight back against their cashless society agenda is um, really starting to work. Uh, and we're going to have a very serious discussion about probably the biggest interview of all time, which is Tucker Carlson's interview with Vladimir Putin and what it means and what we can tell you about it because we've been following this subject not for a year or two, but for 30 years at least. In fact, I'll get you to tell a funny story about a headline we did 30 years ago. No, don't do that, Robbie. We'll do that in a minute. We'll do that later. Okay. Um, All right. Before we begin, remember, what we do on this show is not just about information. It's about activism. We're trying to change the world we're talking about. And we need your help to do that. The way you can do it is like the show. We've got to get it around YouTube, right? Like the show. Share it as widely as you can. Subscribe if you're not a subscriber. Remember to ring the bell icon. Comment um, below. That actually helps get a good discussion and debate going. Plus, it's um, good for the YouTube algorithm. Um, Donate. There's a donate button below. We need your financial support because this is actually activism. Craig, um, next week... I'm going for a long drive to Kingston Southeast. I've just been informed. There's two Kingstons in South Australia. Kingston Southeast, where it's going to be the next hearing of the bank branch closures inquiry. So it's a long drive from um, uh, Melbourne to get there, but we're, we're going to attend every single one of these. And then a month later, we've got a longer trip to Tom Price in WA. You've got a supporter who wants to go with you up there too. That's good. Oh, good. Yeah, someone can come with you. Oh, well. Breaking news. Okay. Um, So we'll do that. And then the following week, after this coming week, uh, Glenn Isherwood and I will be spending the week in Canberra meeting members of parliament on the issues we're going to be talking about. And the main issue, I've got a few updates uh, for you, but the the main issue Glenn and I will be talking about, apart from the general things that we discuss in this show, is our mobilisation to stop Jim Chalmers giving up the government's democratic authority over the banks as he intends to do in this bill, Reserve Bank Reforms Bill, that he's trying to push through the parliament. Um, Now, regular viewers of the show, we know we've been talking about this a lot. Um, The Senate inquiry is underway. There will be hearings in a week or so ago. A week or so, we might even be able to attend those hearings if they coincide with us being in Canberra. Um, And then there's a report due mid-March. What you can do, this is very important, um, the next stage of this is to really... It, it's up to the coalition, Craig. We know that the crossbenchers, and especially the minor parties on the crossbench, like the Greens and One Nation, oppose this um, provision to give up this power over the Reserve Bank. Um, the other crossbenchers will largely oppose it as well. It therefore comes down to the coalition. If they vote against it, we can stop Jim Chalmers from doing this. We know, can't give you the details, but we know there is... Um, growing concern in the ranks of the coalition about this. So we have to hammer them. 
Because growing concern is not good enough. What we need is a spine, right? We need a result. So the most important thing you can do is call Jim Chalmers, the shadow, sorry, what's his name? Angus Taylor, not Jim, call Jim Chalmers too and tell him to stop doing this. But the most important call is Angus Taylor, who's the shadow treasurer and your local, um, the senators for the Liberal National Party from your state. Now we have a link below where you can find those sorted by state Email them, call them and say, you must not um, give up democratic authority over the Reserve Bank. Because that's what it comes down to, democratic authority. A 1937 Banking Royal Commission found that the people represented in the parliament are the ultimate authority over the banking system and the government is the executive of the people and that's why it should have this power. That's what that Royal Commission said. We've had it for 72 years. Jim Chalmers, as Lisa and I went through last week, is part of the international banking cabal, the people who cooked up bail-in. In fact, Jim Chalmers was the advisor, the principal advisor to the Treasurer of Australia at the, Wayne, at the time, Wayne Swan, who committed Australia to bail-in back in 2009. How's that? So anyway, um, that's what they're trying to give up, is this democratic authority. We've got to stop them. So that's very important that you make those calls to Angus Taylor and your Liberal senators, Liberal and Coalition National Party senators. All right. I'm um, just conscious of the time. Quickly run through the other things. Last night, Craig, yeah. Channel 7 played the first two episodes of Mr. Bates versus the Post Office. If you watched it, you'll know what we're talking about. If you haven't watched it, watch it. If you didn't watch it, watch it. You can get it on 7 Plus. All four episodes are up there on 7 Plus, and it's pretty easy to watch on 7 Plus. You just got to register for it. Um, you will see what an absolute injustice this was. And here's what we need you to do. Take the video that is just before this one on YouTube, which is my interview with Angela Cramp of the Licensed Post Office Group this week. We did a quick interview right here. Take that interview and get it around. You must send it to your local member of parliament and say, have you watched Mr. Bates versus the Post Office? Then you've got to watch this because we have to make them understand that there's a there's a catastrophe looming in the Australian Post Office if they don't address it the way um, the Mr. Bates thing should have been addressed years ago. Yep. All right? Okay. Very fiery interview. A lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. No, I, mean, I, I don't know how. Fire. I mean, she, she's, uh, Angela's about the only person that I know that can get more words in than you can, Robbie. <laughs> did you notice that? I did. She was, it was like pushing a button. Yep. But I tell you what... Um, that's how much they relate to this thing. Because when, if you watch Mr. Bates, you will be infuriated at how unjust things can be. Well, that's what your local post people have been going through for 20 plus years. It's what Scott Morrison represented when he got up in Parliament and got rid of exactly. know, Christine Holgate. This absolute disgusting, nasty um, yeah. attitude. And it's, and it's still it's all pervasive in Australia Post today. But you, well, it is. We're going to say something slightly positive about him later, but... Um, if you want a reminder what a thug Morrison was, go watch Nemesis on uh, that was on the ABC on Monday yeah. night. Mm. Um, all right, two other pieces of good news, Craig, and we're going to elaborate them more in coming current in coming um, episodes. Yesterday, a vote was taken in the House of Representatives on a motion put forward by Andrew Wilkie, a very strongly worded motion about Julian Assange. Um, calling on him, the, Anglo- the British and the Americans, to let him come back to Australia. And it passed by a huge margin, 
so over 80 votes to, to around 40. There was a big, the whole government, the whole of the government voted for this motion. So now you've got the House of Representatives, the People's House, voting to tell our allies, let this guy go. Who voted against it? The Liberals and Nationals. That, I'm convinced, reflects the leadership of Peter Dutton. There's a certain type of politician, Craig, that is a normal person, operates on the back bench, maybe doesn't is a minister for a time. They're kind of normal, but when they get into the, you know, they are they're, they're not, you know, they're usually fairly neutral too. They're neither bad nor good, you know, particularly. But if they get to the top job, suddenly you see another side to them because they get leaned on so heavily by the powers that be, they do these things that are out of character. Peter Dutton, I don't think, is one of those. Peter Dutton is a creature of the war machine. His whole political career, he's shown that. And um, he, under his leadership, his party voted against this motion to let Assange go. And if you want to give him a piece of your mind, you should. Um, but, that, but otherwise, it passed by a huge margin. It was a great victory in the Assange campaign. Get the news around. Finally, the last bit of update is... And this is just breaking news. A few months ago, we launched a petition against ASPE, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, as a foreign-funded, foreign interference operation and in Australia. And there's a YouTube video circulating on our website too. Yeah, we'll put the oh, link, to, on the, on we'll put the link below. Site. Well, this week in breaking news, the government has announced a review of government funding into all <laughs> national security think tanks. There's about 100 on the list, apparently. This, this is all of them, things in universities and whatever. But... The, 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 the faction in Australia who want war with China, funded by the US government to foment war with China, are freaking out because they're convinced this is targeted at Aspie. And if it is, damn good. It means the work that we've done over years to expose this organisation who, who are, in order to make money for the weapons manufacturers who fund them and do the bidding of a foreign government, will... will happily provoke a war that will destroy every man, woman and child in Australia, they must be exposed. There is nothing virtuous about them. They are the worst of the worst of the worst. This is the great evil in the world and it's personified in Canberra by this organisation, Aspie. And if this is how, through the, the, the wheels of bureaucratic um, motion, something eventually slowly gets done about them, that is great. All right, so we're going, to have, we're going to be looking at this closely. We'll report more in coming weeks. All right. <coughs> Excuse me. Let me clear my throat. Um, there's the update out of the way. Let's get on to the first agenda, Craig, because I've got a bunch of headlines I want to get through. The people's fight back against the bank's cashless agenda is winning. So first of all, though, the bank's appalling behavior is continuing, right? So here's the first headline. This is from the Daily Mail this week. Some people might have seen it. Commonwealth Bank posts $5 billion cash profit after closing down more than 350 branches in the past five years. And good on um, uh, Daily Mail for making that connection, right? Yeah, big profits for them, no service for the people. Now, Commonwealth Bank has moderated its behaviour under the pressure of the bank closures inquiry, but nevertheless, that is the sort of stuff it's been doing to gouge these bigger and bigger profits. Um, And then... uh, Last week, news.com.au had this report, closure of, about Commonwealth Bank, closure of brick and mortar bank locations picks up speed 
And they point out Commonwealth Bank announced last week it will close three more branches before the 1st of March, including Rundle Mall in Adelaide, Cool and Gatter on the Gold Coast and Coogee in Sydney's east. And we talked about Rundle Mall last week. 800,000 people go through Rundle Mall a week, right? It's the biggest, it's the biggest busiest location in the, in the whole of South Australia. And they're closing the branch there. I was, I've been interviewed twice in two weeks on the biggest radio station in Adelaide about on 5AA, Matthew Pantelis about this issue. They're, they're red hot over it, and they and when they want to, when there's a bank issue now, Craig, who they call Citizens Party. Get they get us on. Um, all right, now this is related to this. Uh, another headline again from uh, this is from Yahoo Finance. Only coals in Australia that won't give out cash. And what is the only coals in Australia that won't give out cash? Cash out services are no longer on offer for residents of this Aussie town and the nearest bank is 800 kilometres away. A Coles in Western Australia has stopped offering cash-out services after the Kununurra supermarket was inundated with demand following the shutting of the banks in town. And there's your cause and effect. So people are going to be mad at Coles, and this is not to defend Coles, they've got their own issues, but the reason Coles and Woolworths have been generous, well, not generous, but they've been happy to do the cash out thing is because cash in, cash out. It's easier for them, it's cheaper for them to let you withdraw cash from them than have to go and bank it, mm. right? So it's been a good arrangement for them. But the flow of cash is drying up. It actually is drying up right across the country. What the banks have been doing has been systematically working. They've been taking away the sources of cash. And in this particular isolated town of Kununurra, the banks close... No cash coming into the town. The Coles has had to say, sorry, you can't get cash here either. They're not part of the agenda, but it's been forced on them by the bank. And what was the last bank to close? Commonwealth Bank. Um, now, so then here's another headline for you, and this is from news.com.au. Australia Post forks out $4,000 a week to fly cash out to remote town. Hmm. What are they talking about? Cooper Pedy. Australia Post CEO told senators during estimates on Tuesday that currently Australia Post was flying cash out to parts of the country on our dime. Quote, Cooper Pedy, for example, is about $4,000 a week that we're spending flying cash in to make sure that town has a provision of cash, he told the committee. That's not what we were set up to do and the banks need to be cognizant of their community responsibility and work with us to ensure that communities that do have a need for cash, that those services are made available. And remember, Robbie, this was the town that had the last Westpac bank yep. close. Now, a bank can handle much more than $4,000 a week in cash. It has the facilities through the safes and everything else it's got to be able to do. This is the sort of necessary function yep. banks play and commercial banks in particular do the same thing i mean they have a community responsibility just to correct right. you though craig westpac wasn't the last bank in cooper it was the only ever bank in cooper that's true this is yes. cooper, this is why cooper is so important cooper while the banks justify what they're doing as part of our, the digital economy banking's changing etc Here's this one town in the heart of Australia that's never been different, ever, and still isn't. It's a tourism and opal mining town. It's miles from anywhere. They don't have the... They have some digital infrastructure, but nothing... Like, it, it's, it's not a justification at all. It's all cash-based. Yeah. And this bank, Westpac, because it has a digital agenda, says, 
after being there for decades and decades and decades, we're leaving you. And this is why Bank at Post all of a sudden becomes the go-to place for people to do the big business banking, or not business banking, their, their personal banking, because a lot of business banking can't be done. Can't be done there, that's the right. Post, and therefore they become, you know, you never hear about this until the headlines come up, that this is the sort of stresses that are placed upon Australia Post so this, and the licensed post offices where, you know, this is where Angela Cramp was talking about in her yep. uh, her interview with you, of just the enormous strain that ordinary people, like in the Mr Bates versus the Post Office video, uh, you know, TV program, are put under because they feel an obligation as members of the community to try and help. But the bureaucratic institutions like Australia Post, they don't look at that. They don't look at their community obligations anywhere near what ordinary people do that live in the community. And what Angela pointed out, the difference between Christine Holgate's approach and what came before her and after, Well, she actually met Paul with Graham. the LPOs. Well, that's right, she met with them. But she saw what they, what the current management and what the former management see as a burden on Australia Post, which is the cost of maintaining post offices, Angela, sorry, Christine Holgate saw as Australia Post's greatest asset. It's got this retail um, shop front that makes it the most recognisable brand in Australia. Mm -hmm. She said, let's use that. And she said, combine it with banking services, we're on a winner, right? But she made the banks pay. And when she was removed, then Paul Graham's job was to make the banks renew. And he was undercut by the banks, even though the same period they were closing down, they've been closing down branches like crazy and sending more and more foot traffic to the post office to be a burden on the post office. So how much does this say it's costing Australia Post just for one town, Cooper Pedy, $4,000 a week, it's costing them just to move the cash there. That's who owns the post office? We do. That's a, that's a big, fat, profitable bank, Westpac, sponging off the taxpayer, exploiting the taxpayer, the, the, the shareholders of Australia Post, the public, so it can get away with making more profit. So now, this, I, want, I, I have an invitation for the viewer. If you go past bank um, branches and you see these signs up the front on them saying, you know, you can go bank at Australia Post. There's a lot of them now, right? They're encouraging it already and then when they close down, they put up a sign saying, you can go bank at Australia Post. Take a photo and send it into the Citizens Party. Send the, send the photo into us. Because I think it's about time we made a poster that, that's a spoof of that, that says, um, this branch is closing. We are now going to sponge off the taxpayer at Australia Post, who you pay for, so that we can make even more profit by taking by exploiting the money of the Australian taxpayers who own Australia Post. And we'll get posters made and start, you can put those on the bank's headquarters and front windows and let them wear it. Do it when no one's looking. Run away, whatever you have to do, or, or if you're really, if you're, if, if you're on a Zimmer frame, walk away. Doesn't matter. Make a point, and let's let's start bombarding these branches because that's what they're doing. They're, these are the biggest freeloaders in the country, the most profitable business in the country, the biggest freeloaders in the country. And if you want to sign of how profitable, this deserves more. I just want to mention this in passing, but consider how profitable the banks are compared to other businesses. They're, Commonwealth Bank's on track for more than $10 billion profit again this year. There is currently an inquiry that's just started into Coles and Woolworths and how they exploit farmers. Now, they deserve that inquiry. But Coles and Woolworths profit is about a billion to $2 billion. 
given how, despite how dominant they are across the country, it's a fraction of what the banks make, mm. right? An absolute, uh, just a fraction. So bear that in mind. These banks are freeloaders off the taxpayers, and we're going to start putting up posters about that. All right, moving, moving right along. It's good, though, that Paul Graham is now showing a bit of spine and taking the banks on there. Next headline, Vodafone customers all over the country were left without service. So this is from the 7th of February. It's just the latest example. People are knowing that you, this cashless thing can't work. It cannot work. It just cannot work. Craig, this week, it's now Thursday. So when was the storm? Tuesday. Tuesday mm. night here in Melbourne, we had quite a storm. It wasn't a record-breaking storm by any means. Um, the sky looked a bit ominous in the middle of the day and whatever. And of course, it was, it was a, you know, been a warm day. They call it extreme weather. We'd had two days over 30, right, in the higher 30s. That's all. Not a, I don't know why it was necessarily extreme. Anyway, big storm. Um, some some um, high-voltage towers crumpled like aluminium foil over there towards Anarchy out past Geelong. Um, that was quite something. I'd like to see how, how they were constructed or whether they have been maintained properly or whatever. But 500,000 people lost their power. Look, that's terrible. And there's reasons for it, etc. And that should be addressed. But the people, the same people who are responsible for the, if there's, if you can identify the reasons, the, the, the decision-making failures that led to that, the same people responsible for that, I can tell you, are the same people responsible for letting the banks force us all cashless, right? It's just, it's just life. It means we cannot, especially in Australia, but nowhere in the world can you survive on an entirely digital economy. You just can't. So the 500,000 Victorians who were without power on Wednesday this week, what are they supposed to... They, they did, luckily for them, they didn't see the headline on their phone or whatever because their phones would have been flat, come out saying Commonwealth Bank made $5 billion, $5 billion half-year profit thanks to them um, going cashless and not being able to transact that day, right? Anyway, so look, people are starting to get that. Now, so I've gone through a lot of the bad behaviour there. Why does this mean we're winning? I, I want to mention a few things. First of all, I'm convinced of this. The level of attention you're seeing, the fact that I'm getting called by commercial, biggest commercial radio stations in Australia and the big cities so every time this comes up, you've never seen this much attention on the issue. And, I, and I can, I've said this before, the politicians, when they see the public's attention on something, they know, all right, we better not ignore this. Well, that's what's happened with Mr Bates in the post office. Exactly. Because of that TV program, you know, politicians now are waking up very, very fast Really fast to yeah to the biggest scandal of the, of UK history, because it was publicised. Yep, that, that's what they need. They will ignore given given all things being equal, their default is to pretty much ignore an issue, and that's a particular pet issue for them. Something has to force it on the agenda. This issue is fully on the agenda in Australia now, and a lot of it has to do with um, what we we're able to do with Dale Webster and Martin North in this time last year in getting up this inquiry into regional bank closures, and it's really taken off since then. But a bit of good news that, to me, is emblematic of the success we're having is what Bob Catter pulled off in Parliament last week. And so this was beautiful. Bob Catter, um, uh, this is the the headline. Bob Catter's fight against cashless society ramps up. Bob Catter's embarrassment of having his cash refused at a cafe has highlighted a glaring problem with Australia's move toward being a cashless society. Not just a cafe, Robbie. The <laughs> cafe. So this is in Parliament. When you're, yeah. there's, a, there's, there's an area of Parliament where it's public and then there's a bigger area that's just for the... You've got to have a pass to get in there. So I've been, there's a big cafe there and I've been there a lot. And Bob just decided he was going to 
um, paying cash. But I know it's a cashless cafe. In fact, when I'm there, I'm always telling people, why is this cafe allowed to be cashless? So Bob, Bob um, took it on and he refused to pay with a card. He said they had a $50 note. They were initially going to give him his meal for free so they wouldn't have to take it. Eventually, the management came down and he insisted that they took it. I bet you they paid, they gave him change out of their own pockets because mm. they wouldn't have had any there, right? And then Bob took it up with the speaker, Milton Dick. And the story continues, Mr. Catter took the issue to Parliamentary Speaker Milton Dick, who vowed to immediately reverse the cashless policy. Bob Catter said, if you have a cashless society, the banks control your life. And essentially enough said, but he kept going. You're not able to buy a loaf of bread without permission from the banks, Mr. Catter said later. It is bad enough now, and it will become infinitely worse. Cash was also vital during power outages and natural disasters such as cyclones, he added. And then the last thing we want to mention in this regard is the, um, the CEO of NAB, Ross McEwen, has resigned. And Dale Webster at the regional wrote a devastating article about this guy. Third, which we've we published in our Australian Alert Service. The people can call in for a copy if you want to read the article. We can send it to you. Did and you and, it, and it's on, we'll put the link below as well. It's online. Third of NAB's regional banks wiped out in CEO's reign of terror. After slashing NAB's regional branches by a third, Ross McEwen is bailing out before a Senate inquiry into the closures reports. This is, this is a good point that Dale's made. Minuscule savings at the cost of trashing the bank's reputation in a critical lending base. What will his legacy be? And then she goes, she goes um, through and, and documents it. Um, because, of course, they have been the bank. It, we, we started off Bag and Commonwealth Bank, but in the, in the, under the heat of this inquiry, they've moderated their behaviour in the regions. NAB didn't. No. NAB just pushed on. What, uh, what Dale goes through is how you, know, you have these very, very wealthy agricultural areas yep. with huge amounts of money going through. You have 5,000 dairy farmers, you know, that sort of thing. I think she's quoted here. But yeah, 5,000, a population of more than, you know, say Mafra, the city of Gibson. Yep. We've talked about this before. It has a population of 5,000 people. It's a dairy farming centre. Very, very Plenty of money going through it. Absolutely. And they closed the bank branch. It's not because the bank branch is not profitable. We've said that many, many times. This is part of pushing the digital economy. It's part of shutting down branches to maximise their profits. Uh, and, and look, Robbie, every time they say that, we know it's a lie because their profits don't come from you know, having to pay a million dollars a year or so for a bank branch. It comes from the speculation, particularly in the real estate bubble, yep. and from the sort of interest rates that people are having to pay in order to be able to stay in their home because of the Reserve Bank's decisions and so forth. So you've got all this... So they're making money out of all their customers for 24 hours a day, seven yes. days a week, and they do not want to provide a basic service for a few hours And the a week. government is not forcing them to. Well, and that's, 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 that's the issue. That's why we need a you know, public post office. No, that's, that, is the, yeah. that is the issue right there. It, it, you, we can you be mad at the bankers, um, and you should, but understand that there are certain species of banker and that's why what we talked about with, with Angus Taylor and Jim Chalmers beginning is so important. In 1937, a Royal Commission said, whatever the bankers are going to be, the government of the day is the ultimate authority. And problem we have, a, we have governments that under neoliberal ideology have absolved themselves of their responsibility. Now, while we're on NAB, there's a, we had... We, the leadership of the Australian Citizens Party who have led this campaign, we had our own ironic 
um, experience yesterday. Yeah, well, because you can't you can't go to Kingston, you can't go to Cameron, <laughs> you can't go to Mount Tom Price or Tom Price because your National Australia Bank credit card doesn't work. So well, so Craig and I have been at this a while, and way back yeah, in 1998, 1998, 25 years ago, Craig, as the person who takes care of the financial Treasurer. side of what we do, the treasurer, got me to have a business company card, a company card for the, for the Citizens Party um, and for, with National Australia Bank. And I've had it, and I, this is what, when you book flights, you use your credit card, etc. and this is what you book. So I've done it for 25 years. This is what I've done. And then yesterday, I went to book my flight to Canberra, or our flights to Canberra, and it wouldn't go through because they have a Rex, who I was going to fly with, they have a, uh, an extra verification system. And for whatever reason, they concluded was my personal mobile is not connected to my card. And then I called the bank and they had to go through the verification process and I had all of what I needed to have there, but I didn't have quite what they wanted. So they said, you've got to get the guy at the, at the office there who is in charge of the banking side of things to call us. So you called I them. I called them up and then went through all the hoops, like again. And then they said, well, we, I'm sorry, but we, after another five-minute pause and you put on hold, the uh, person comes back and says, I'm sorry, but we can't do this for you because your mobile phone number is a personal number, which actually it isn't. It's owned by the company too. True, that's right. And, but we can't talk to you because it's his personal number. He then has to ring up the bank again to get the details changed. So by now, now I want to point out, Robbie, 40 I, want minutes. To, I want to point out that over the last 25 years, there have been numerous places and cha- uh, times when you've actually have to sign paperwork for the NAB. I yeah. suspect they've lost those details, that they were there, but they've lost them. Which well, of is course. I've had a, I'm, I'm now 49. I've had, a, I've had the same mobile phone number since I was 30. So yeah. um, I'm sure they've got it. Anyway, so then this has taken 45 minutes between the two of us. So we've got nothing better to do, have we? Oh, no, absolutely on the phone to do this. Not, no. So then, then it's my turn again. Now, we produce a weekly magazine. So Wednesdays, I'm very busy. I had to wake a few hours to, to get the magazine to bed. Then I called them up and this nice young man got on the phone and he said, how can I help you? I said, well, whatever we do, I want to make sure this gets sorted out on this call because I don't have more time to waste. So he, was re- he tried really hard. I, let me, there's no reflection on him and it's not the fault of the staff. He tried really hard and he's going through the motions and then he came back and I could see he was nervous about breaking the news to me eventually after another 25, 30 minutes. And he said, I'm really sorry to have to do this to you, but we cannot verify your identity enough. And then here's the kicker. You have to go to the branch. <laughs> Just as well you don't live in Cooper Pedy. So then I'm thinking, what do I say to this? Now, I'm in this invidious position where you've got to lash out, but you don't want to take it out on someone. So I, I thought, how do I do? So I said to him, I said, well, where is my local branch? <laughs> now, I know where it is. We happen to be, luckily, in a place in Melbourne where there's still a local branch here. But I, I said, where is my local branch? And he said, oh, well, where are you? I said, well, what if I was in one of those many hundreds of towns and suburbs where you've shut the branch? Oh, 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 oh. And I didn't get any harsher than that. And that was the bottom line, though. He had no choice but to send me to a branch to do something that, frankly, is, as you've said, is probably their fault. But the branch is absolutely necessary, yet his bosses are taking away that necessary service. I mean... I expect when you get to the branch, I'm going to get a phone call from you to say, (laughs) Craig, can you come down to the branch because I don't have the authority to do this. 
that'll <laughs> be that the happens, next, that that'll be the next step. You watch. If, I, if that happens, I will I will repeat what I did in. Uh, so I think the same year, in, in 1998, I went into a Commonwealth but Bank branch and there was a queue a mile long. You're a director of the company that runs the credit cards, Robbie. Yeah. I mean, this stuff is insane, but it's typical of, you know... And, and by the way, what the reason they're so, they're so finicky on scams. the phones is because they cause the problem of scams. By shutting so many branches, they've caused the problem of scams. They have to make up for it by putting us through these hoops and they can only solve the problem with the branch. What don't you get, banks? What don't you get? So when they're closing branches, they are deliberately putting people through utter hell. This, this is unconscionable, no excuse, and we've got to make sure politicians all get that. And look, Robbie, a couple of other things. We aren't allowed to bank any cash under $500. Right. We're not allowed to bank it. They just won't accept it, the National Australia Bank. So supporters... Only cash over $500, please. <laughs> First of all. And secondly, they say you can do all your banking through an ATM. No, you can't. No, you can't. The point is that if you're an organisation, a responsible organisation, you always need to have two or more people to sign. It's, if it's all right if you're just an all, your own, own operation, but when you're a company or a, a, an organisation, you have to have two or more to sign. It's a basic requirement of the Constitution. Yep. Right? It's a security thing. But... When you get a debit card, for, you can't get a debit card for a company because that implies you have one oh, sign-up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the only way you can put money into an ATM is to put your debit card in and then deposit the money. But I can't get a debit card for the company to deposit the money because you have to have two people to sign. So this is of absurdity that people don't, don't realise until you get into the, the nitty-gritty of what these banks are pushing us into. So what do we do? Well, we've had to find other ways to get the cash in to the banks. I put on a credit card and so forth. That, in, that incurs fees, but it's either that or you've got to waltz all the way down to the bank, spend half an hour you know, of your time doing that. It's very expensive, right? So you can do things like that or, uh, you know, it, it's, it's not very easy that, at all. They're boxing everyone in. To, because to, they don't want people to use cash, right? They don't want right? people to use cash. All right, well, there's our little rant. But the good news is, like I said, um, the attention on this means we're getting a lot of traction and we're going to keep it up because it's not just about our inconvenience. This is about the power. Bob Catter's quote was right. If you have a cashless society, the banks control your life. This is about the power of the banks and the power of the banks must not be greater than the power of the people and we have to make sure Parliament follows through on that. All right, let's move on. Craig, will the Anglo-Americans accept Putin's ceasefire? Now, the real... <laughs> and peace offering. Too. This is probably the biggest news, not just of the year, of the decade so far. Um, this interview that Tucker Carlson, the American uh, broadcaster, did with Vladimir Putin has over 200 million views on X or Twitter um, on his channel there. 200 million just on yeah, that. Tucker Carlson was with Fox News until Murdoch sacked him. That's right. Right. So he had certain views that went against the, the, you know, the ideas of Rupert Murdoch. So he's gone out. And, and, and yeah, but when asked about why, now, I'm, a, I'm ambivalent in some respects about Tucker Carlson because people will know what mm. we're, our concern about a war with China. And if you listen to Tucker Carlson on China, he's appalling. But if we had time, I'd play the clip, uh, the clip of when he asked Putin about China because Putin put him right back in his, in his place Putin said, don't kid yourself, the Americans fear China more than anybody. And the second thing Putin said is, look how well China's doing, right? 
Putin understands the importance of China in the world. Um, anyway, so t- t- hopefully Tucker learns something from that. But on Russia, he's a, he has at least seen that there's, a, there's another side to the thing on Russia. And when Tucker explains why he's willing to be so at odds with the American establishment, his explanation is something I relate to. He cheered for the Iraq war like everybody else like of his generation did. But when there was no weapons of mass destruction, he actually learned something. He learned how much they lie, and he hasn't forgotten it, at least when it comes to Russia. So he went and did this interview, and it's huge. Now, the legacy, the size of the interview, the viewership, I mean, this is, even at the height of television without the internet, you never saw views like that on anything, right? Ever. Well, the only Americans watch the Super Bowl. Oh, that's true. The World Cup soccer would have a billion views or whatever, yeah. but that's the, that's the final. You're talking about an interview? Forget about it. 200 million plus, that's, and on YouTube, another 20 million or whatever. Um, so the legacy media, the television, et cetera, they're being left for dead, and they're freaking out about it. And then, so what they're saying, don't watch it, don't watch it. Well, watch it. Watch it for yourself, make up your own mind, and learn some history. Don't be put off by what people are saying about this long history lesson at the beginning. Learn something from that history. Um, the way Tucker characterized it is, is actually is false. He said that Putin was trying to establish that Ukraine's not a real country. No, that's not what he was trying to establish. He was trying to establish that Ukraine and Russia are intimately intertwined, right? They, they, they're not, um, they're, they're, they're brothers. And in fact, Russia started in Kiev. And that's what that's the main point I was trying to make, which is why they which is why Ukraine is so near and dear to the Russian psyche and why the NATO encroachment into Ukraine was a bridge too far. Um, but I want to make Putin went, made some things crystal clear. And this is the, so to me, these are the most important things that came out of that interview. And you, we have to take those on board. So the first one, um, he said there was three things that pushed Russia into conflict with the West. Three things. Three. First, the CIA, Five Eyes slash MI6, it's all part of it, support for Chechen terrorists in the Caucasus going back to the 90s. Um, Russia was dealing with an actual terrorist problem in the Caucasus and it was being whipped up, armed and incited by the CIA. And when he met... Bush, he said, and he didn't, he didn't um, disrespect Bush, right? He, he said he, uh, you know, he has to deal with the people on the other side of the table, so he respected Bush. He told Bush, this is what you're doing. Bush claimed in that conversation that he didn't know, and he said to Putin, I'm going to kick their asses. Because he knew Putin wasn't lying to them, to him, right? That when you're at this level, you're not making stuff up. The CIA knows what the... Um, the, the the Russian side doing that it's not the KGB anymore so, some nerd will correct me FSB is the Ukrainian one GRU the CIA yeah, knows yeah, what the right. GRU is doing the GRU knows what the CIA is doing it's just that simple right um, so they're not lying to each other Bush said he'd kick their ass nothing happened second issue anti now by the way Russians are not fermenting terrorism against America anywhere in the world this was the other this was happening in their direction second the anti-ballistic missile defense treaty Putin raised as the second issue you and I over the 15 years of the show have discussed this issue on this show many times going way back um, because we knew all along how serious it was so this was the, the, the treaty that said 
both sides would not develop missiles that would be able to shoot down and neutralize um, ICBMs, strategic weapons, um, because if you did that, then one side, if one side developed those kind of anti-ballistic missile weapons, the other side would be robbed of their nuclear deterrent. And then what you have, instead of the mad, mutually assured destruction balance, which is bad, but there's a better way to solve it, instead of that balance, you would have an imbalance, and that creates, the, that creates a much more dangerous space, right? Much greater instability. So you, under Cheney, Dick Cheney, the Americans arbitrarily scrapped it, and the Russians said, whoa, whoa, whoa. And then, oh, no, no, we're no threat. The, the Americans started moving missiles into Eastern Europe. And the Russians said, and the, and they said, oh, these are not aimed at Russia, they're aimed at Iran. And the Russians knew that was rubbish all along. Um, and they had to deal with So what did they do? Putin said, they then went and developed the world's leading hypersonic missiles. And they are the world's leading hyper missiles now. They're, they're much better than anything the Americans have got, equivalent Americans have got. Um, and now they can destroy targets from thousands of kilometres away, super fast speeds, etc. And that was forced on them because of that policy, right? So that's the second thing. The third thing is the big one. And again, not only, not only have we talked about on this show many times, our great producer here, Ben, years ago, developed a brilliant animation of this, the expansion of NATO. Because Russia didn't expand up to Germany's borders, NATO expanded up to Russia's borders, right? The expansion went east, and this was the big one. And Russia complained and complained and complained and complained. They made it absolutely clear what was going on. He told the funny story about when he met Bill Clinton, who was in his last year, and he said to Bill, "What if we join? What if Russia joins NATO? Because of course, if Russia joined NATO, there'll be no need for it. There's no. Well, that's right. There's no. There's, Russia has a has its security guarantees." It can't be invaded by the defence pact it's part of. <laughs> I mean, Russia is the country that got invaded twice from Europe, first by Napoleon and then by Hitler, right? This is a genuine concern that the Russians have. You may not see the world like Russians do, but they do, right? And, say, and Bill Clinton said, oh, well, that, he said, oh, I don't see why not, why well, you can't join NATO. And then a few hours later, when they, when they joined for dinner that night, Bill Clinton said, oh, after speaking to his advisor, he said, oh, sorry, that can't happen. Because, no, what happened when the, um, the, the British, the first British commander of NATO after it was started, I forget his name offhand, but he said the purpose of NATO was to keep the Germans down, the Americans in, and the Russians out. Mm. And it's, it's never been about the Cold War. It's never been about communism. It's been about the, 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 the Anglo-Americans controlling Europe and world geopolitics through this NATO entity. Now, Russia complained where they drew the line was when NATO went into Ukraine. Ukraine has never officially joined NATO, but NATO completely infiltrated Ukraine. And that's when Putin said, enough. Right, now, I'm going to go through some figures now um, because I think it's quite important just to remind people what's at stake. Putin, oh, sorry, before I get to the figures, there was the other thing Putin's clear on. So those are, those are the three things he said are the big issues, the reason for the conflict. What he was crystal clear on is this. Russia is ready to negotiate an end to the war at any time. Hmm. He pointed out that they had, all, they had effectively done that by March 2022 when it had just started and hardly anyone had died. The 
Ukrainian side had initialed the agreement. And then Boris Johnson went in there, this big fat buffoon from, you know, who gorges himself on food and women in the UK, who's an embarrassment to anybody who knows him, somehow is able to represent the war establishment and go in there and say, no, you're not going to do that. I'm going to pretend I'm Winston Churchill. Screw that, Zelensky. You're going to fight. Because you, and you're going to fight to the death for us because this is what's in our interest. And somehow that's allowed to shape world events, right? And, and I'll give you the death figures in a minute as a result of Boris Johnson doing that. The Ukraine side had initialed the agreement and the Anglo-Americans with Boris Johnson taking the lead blew it up. But Russia is ready to negotiate. He made the point Zelensky, who is a total pawn of the worst idiots in America and Britain, Zelensky has now decreed it illegal to negotiate with Russia, including himself. By his own decree, he would have to lift that decree to be able to do it. So, the, so it's, it's not the Russian side that don't want to talk. It's that side, right? But if that changes, the war is over. How high are the stakes here? You might find these figures shocking. Um, this is the death toll so far, right? Now, uh, I'll put this graphic up. These are UN figures, UN figures, official UN figures. They show 10,000 Ukrainian civilians have been killed and around 20,000 injured in two years. Now, if you zoom in on the pie charts there, what you see is the majority of deaths are in the western side of Ukraine. Um, and the minority are, in the, are on the west, eastern side, the Russian side, right? So now that Russia is in there and fighting a war, Ukrainians are dying. That's 10,000, and I want, we're going to contrast that figure in a minute. Um, prior to that, though, prior to the war, again, these are official UN figures. The, according to the UN, in the, in the eight years from 2014 to 2022, which is the civil war that everyone wants to deny exists, 14,000 people were killed and 40,000 were injured, of which 3,000 killed and 7,000 injured were civilians. So that was a serious conflict as well, right, in, in those eight years. Very serious conflict. I'll zoom in on this graphic. What it shows you that 80% of those deaths at that time were on the Russian-speaking side. So the proportion was inverted. And of course, that's why that's one of the reasons the war started. It wasn't. It was while Ukra while NATO was infiltrating Ukraine and taking it over, the Ukrainian government under Poroshenko and then Zelensky kept killing their own people in eastern Ukraine. Why? Because they were the people that didn't accept the coup result in 2014. That's why, right? Um, they said, "No, we're not going to be ruled over by you lot." Um, and that's, so that war was already raging. This is the Russian argument. We, we, we came in to end it, right? And so now it's, it could have ended straight away, within a month, if Boris Johnson hadn't said Now it's been two years later. And just before the Russians went in, Putin went into Ukraine, there was going to be a massive mobilisation of the Ukrainian military yep. into the eastern Donetsk area because of this, because of the... Um, you know, it was a provocation, which would have Because of the, because of the fact that they, they hadn't, Accepted yep. the government of Ukraine. Exactly. Now, so we've had a war. So I want to put this, this is a graphic that was actually on Media Watch on Monday night because Media Watch, Paul Barry, blithering idiot, he's one of the mainstream media guys that went on there to say you shouldn't, essentially, 
ridicule the hell out of this interview with Putin so that people don't watch it. But he put this graphic up, and it's quite revealing. Zoom in on the New York Times headline there. This was from August last year. The New York Times had reported as of that point, because of this war, 500,000 troops have been killed or injured in Ukraine in the two years of the war. 500,000. Now, go back to the contrast to... Go back to the civilian deaths I talked about at the beginning. 10,000 civilians killed, 20,000 injured. So 30,000 killed and injured in two years, civilians, 500,000 troops. That is an enormous um, civilian to soldier ratio that is, that is actually quite unusual. A military expert I consulted, a genuine military Australian, Australian military guy, military officer, he said to me, this is a quote from him, one of the few major wars in which the military casualties are greater than the civilians. That tells you an awful lot about Russia's targeting. They could have done a Gaza-style targeting approach if they wanted to kill civilians. But what do we hear from the beginning? Oh, Putin's killing civilians. Putin's, Putin's causing genocide. Putin's committing genocide in Ukraine, etc. No, if those are the results from two years of war, they're terrible results. But that's a war that is not targeting civilians Right, that's genuine, you know, and terrible for the civilians that have been killed, etc. But you can't let our side can call that genocide, and then turn around and defend what's happening in Gaza. Because what's happening in Gaza? The Gaza death toll, since just since October, it's October, November, December, January, and now middle February. Right, so four and a half months. The Gaza death toll, Craig, is up to twenty-eight thousand people. 70,000 injured just in four and a half months. More than a third of the dead are children. The great majority of those dead are civilians. A thousand kids that have been injured have been operated on without anesthetic. Yet the people that have been telling us for two years how evil Putin is and he's deliberately committing genocide in um, Ukraine turn around and say Israel has a right to defend itself. And Australia's complicit in this too. Australia's absolutely complicit in that. That's, a, that's a, a very appalling and worrying thing. I mean, it's good to, to hear today, we had a briefing today, that South Africa has gone back to the International Court of Justice and saying, you know, you're on your ruling that you gave a you know, couple of weeks back, nothing's changed. In fact, it's got worse. This is genocide. We want action. Yep. And there's been other countries that have gone to the United Nations saying, we want to have actual action we want to see that there can be action taken against Israel if, if this genocide continues because at the present time the ICJ doesn't have any enforcement capacity. We need this. So, I mean, the, 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 the problem, Robbie, is that the world is moving too slowly uh, into, because of the fact that you've got this intransigence by this factor in the United States. They're the ones that are fa- uh, supplying all the weaponry. If they stop selling and stop selling and you know stop providing the weapons overnight the war would be finished within a matter of hours because yep. Israelis couldn't continue and and there's a lot and in Ukraine both wars would be both over. both yeah but and the point is there's a lot there's a lot of opposition inside the United States to what's going on in uh, in Gaza right but it's at the present time it hasn't got the traction political traction necessary although this will if you know if it doesn't stop soon Biden's finished because there's so much opposition. Well, and so what you've got to learn from Gaza for the benefit of this conversation, for the purpose of this this discussion, is when it's so clearly an absolute carnage, a human bloodbath, 
of innocent people. Yet our holier-than-thou side, the people who condemn the Russians and Chinese, I mean, look at the contrast. Uh, China has a terrorist, incident, a terrorist problem in Xinjiang. So it has all this poverty with the Uyghur people, etc. It says, well, we're going to teach them skills so they're not susceptible to be radicalised. And they set up this essentially this network of TAFE colleges to send them there to learn skills so they could, they could raise their living standards, have a, have a, a um, poverty reduction program. The Americans call that genocide. The, the um, Putin was accused of genocide at the International Criminal Court because he moved children in Ukraine out of harm's way. They, they got all these kids in eastern Ukraine and moved them to Russia temporarily so they'd be out of harm's way so they wouldn't get killed. That's genocide. Yet the slaughter in, Ukraine, in, in Gaza is going on and they have a right to defend itself. And so when you see that sheer hypocrisy, sheer double standard, you realise there's no, there's no morality in our position. It really is about the power of the Anglo-Americans and they're trying to dominate the world as a unipolar power and they have to keep Russia and China down, right? And that's why they don't want you to listen to what someone like Putin's saying because if you listen to what he's saying, he's saying, you want to talk, we'll have peace tomorrow. Robbie, we're on the wrong side. I mean, we're on the wrong side of this because the world is actually shifting. If you have a look at world trade, the US dollar is nowhere near what it used to be in terms of the amount of US dollars used for trade, you know, yep. it's completely changed. You're getting different currencies coming up. The reason Putin's been able to survive is because the huge number of trades that he does in the Chinese, remember, right? It's, it's all Which changed. He, he talks about it all in his interview. Yeah, it's all through the interview, and, and there's plenty of figures about it. But the, the, I was, look, I've been doing some work for some presentations I'm doing, you know, which are coming up. And I was staggered. You know, recently there was a conference in uh, Uganda, the G77. It's not just 77 countries, it's 137 mm. countries. Yep. Now, these countries are sick of this Western unipolar, US-dominated uh, system because they look at Ukraine. They look at see how they've, Ukraine's, they've funded Ukraine. You know, you know, Victoria Newland back in 2014 boasted the US government spent $5 billion dollars overthrowing an elected government. And they may not say anything publicly, but all these countries are looking back, they're looking at this, they're saying, I don't think we want anything to do with the United States anymore no. or their system. Let's go somewhere else. And of course, you've had the BRICS over the last 20 years develop, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. And it's ironic, that not ironic, but it's legitimate that South Africa would be putting up their complaint to the International Criminal Court, uh, on um, International Court of Justice, I should say, uh, on on this genocide, but now the BRICS has expanded to ten, right? So there's another five countries come on board. They wanted there's another sixteen waiting in the wings. And what's the characteristic of these countries? It's mutual benefit. It's mutual trade, mutual financing, yep. and development of the internal economies. And ironically, you know, Argentina pulled out, and they've got the biggest freeloading, you know, free trade liberal, uh, neoliberalist. Uh, president now, which is going to absolutely destroy Argentina because all the policies that we've known that we've wrecked our country with, privatisation, deregulation, you know, allowing the banks to reign free. He wants to dollarise their entire, get rid of the Argentina peso. Well, they their sovereignty to the United States. Yeah, just, just hand it over. So the point is that you have a different uh, uh, 
polarity starting in the world. It's no longer a single polarity. It's a multipolar world. And we, one's now, rising, are one's we, are tanking. We, are we so dumb? We're on the tanking side. Are we so dumb? Are our leadership so dumb as they can't say, look, let's get out of this? I, I think there's moves towards, you know, we've seen the moves towards repairing the relationships with China and so forth. But you've got these think tanks like that have been so ever powerful since John Howard, who was responsible mm. for the Iraq war, set them up, you know, like, like Aspie and so forth. If these things can come down, then the noise factor and the, the pushing factor that support the yep. uh, arseholes in, excuse the French, the arseholes in Parliament that want war with China, it won't be there anymore. So therefore you've got more possibility of mutual development, you know, real trade and real cooperation like we had only a mere few years ago. Well said, China. Craig. Now, um, just before we conclude, um, I want to just a very short update from something we discussed last week. We talked about the the, um, the the claim that Palestinian protesters at the at the uh, opera house had had shouted gas the Jews was debunked, um, and and the video shows where's the Jews. But um, Consortium News, which some people might recognise, is a is an independent news service founded by um, a great journalist uh, in America who's, who's since died. But their correspondent in Australia, Kathy Vogan, uh, has actually shown, because she was at the Opera House, and she was recording the same protest. And what they're even now saying is that is the, is the chant of where's the Jews doesn't show up on her recording at all. And she can show you her, the actual, the people in the same position in both recordings, but there's no even where's the Jews. And so there's a now an even bigger question mark over the whole construction of an absolute fabrication here Right to try and to try and you know uh, smear that protest for an agenda. Um, anyway, I wanted to mention that because you, you could look it up. Kathy Vogan, C A T H Y V O G A N Consortium News. Um, you can look that up and see her update on that. It just goes to the, the point of what we were saying last week. You know, wars are based on lies, right? Um, so anyway, in the big picture, uh, Gaza is you know requires a, an incredible intervention. But you've got the other war front, which is Ukraine, and, the, and the, one of the sides is saying, look, we're ready to talk. It's us refusing to talk. And do we want peace or don't we want peace? And we're showing our true colours there. And we have to be on the side of peace. So we'll keep fighting. So, Craig, we're out of time. Thank yep. you very much for joining yep. us today. Thanks to the viewer. Remember, call Angus Taylor and share Mr Bates and Angela Cramp's interview as widely as possible. Thanks for tuning in. Tune in next week for more of the Citizens Report. Authorised by Robert Bowick, Citizens Party, Melbourne.